Hello, readers. Sebastian Malaby is a best-selling author, former Financial Times contributing editor, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, the Paul A. Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. His newest book is titled The Power Law, Venture Capital, and the Making of the New Future. Sebastian, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Sure. Great to be with you. It's my pleasure, Sebastian. So uh, I guess a couple of basic questions to start things off so people understand what we're talking about the rest of the way. So why don't we start with what exactly is the power law? So the easiest way to answer the question is to start with what the power law is not. It's not a normal distribution. The normal distribution in 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 statistics is when nearly all the observations are close to the average. So if you take the question of the height of American men, the average man is five feet 10 and two thirds of the men are within three inches of that. A power law distribution is a different kind of thing where you've got a lot of things which are basically zero-ish and then a few outliers which are extremely big. Um, So think about uh, wealth instead of height. Um, a lot of American men, you know, the average family might have, I think the number is something like 750,000 bucks in assets. But then there are these billionaires who are like more than a thousand times richer. So that's a power law distribution. And in venture capital, um, you get a power law distribution of investments where um, a venture capitalist will back 10 different startups, maybe seven fail. And so the investment goes to zero. Uh, one goes sideways and a couple are making more than 10 times the invested money. Uh, and so they're, you know, they're shooting up exponentially. And, and that's what I mean by a, a skewed distribution as a parallel distribution. It's a great explanation there. And what about venture capital? For somebody who's maybe vaguely familiar with this concept, what is venture capital? Sure, it's the business of investing in very early stage companies. They're usually tech companies. And what happens is that um, a company is being formed, uh, an investor says, um, I'll put in money uh, and I'll get a share of your company. Uh, and the money will last you so that you can, you know, have, have the money you need to, to work on this for like six to nine months. And then we'll see how you're going. And if you've been making progress, you can raise another round of venture capital to take you to the next stage. And each time, there's an assessment after nine months or thereabouts to see if the startup has made enough progress to warrant another tranche of uh, venture capital. Your exploration of venture capital in this book goes through the history of things and really the beginnings, or I guess the beginnings of the massive impact that venture capital would have on tech and the rest of the world starts, perhaps unsurprisingly, in Silicon Valley. Who are the traitorous eight and what do they have to do with the beginnings of both Silicon Valley and also venture capital? Well, the traitorous eight were um, eight engineers who were working for a semiconductor pioneer company called Shockley Semiconductor. And William Shockley, the founder, was a fantastic scientist, won the Nobel Prize, but was a terrible guy to work for. Hmm. So these engineers wanted to split off and they wanted to go work for another company. And at that point, a financier came out from New York and met them in California and said, listen, instead of just joining another company, why don't you start your own company? And they're like, what? What do you mean? Never heard of that before. We don't have any capital for that. And the financier says, but I'll raise the capital for you. 
and do your own company. And that way, if it goes well, you get to own some of the fruits of your own work. And so that's what they did. They were called the traitorous eight because in those days to quit a company like that was just not in the culture. I mean, people joined a company, they worked loyally until they were 60 years old and then they retired on their 60th birthday with a gold watch. So the culture was being changed in that moment. And then as time went by, the same financier, he's called Arthur Rock, financed a bunch of other um, tech companies and I call it liberation capital because he was liberating these engineers from their existing companies and helping them to start their own companies. And interestingly, they were utilizing a, a combination, an ironic combination of counterculture and capitalism too, correct? Well, I guess that's right. They were against the established organization man culture, which was the 50s and 60s, you know, the time of big labor, um, big uh, big companies and big government. And they were encouraging this startup vibe, uh, which was all about disruption, disrupting the incumbents. So that was kind of counter the industrial culture, but at the same time, it's very much you know, for profit. It's about capitalist ambition. Um, and so this, this, this mixture of, of capitalism and counterculture. And was it really uh, Davis and Rock, Arthur Rock, who you just mentioned, that uh, really started to push things to these levels, really challenging the traditional VC model leading into the 1960s? Yeah, I mean, before Arthur Rock came along, there'd been a couple of experiments with venture capital, but they hadn't really done all that well. And Arthur Rock was the first person who really nailed it, you know, really understood the model. Uh, and the key thing was that power law thinking I mentioned earlier. What he understood was that in a, in a skewed distribution, it really doesn't matter if you lose because your profits are gonna come from one or two bets out of 10, they're gonna hit it out of the park. It's not a home run business, it's a grand slam business. Uh, and he understood that, therefore he was willing to swing for the fences, go for really ambitious projects, and some of the time they didn't work and other times they just did extraordinarily well. He did a, an investment in a company called SDS, Scientific Data Systems, which was sort of like the WhatsApp of the 1960s. Hmm. It sold for a billion dollars in 1969. So that was a huge amount of money back then. He backed Apple later on. Um, he did Intel. Uh, so he had a bunch of hits and uh, that really set up a model that other people said, gee, I'd like to do that too. And then they started copying him. And that's how West Coast Ventures Capital got started. We'll certainly get more into the Apple story shortly. First, though, in the early 1970s, venture capital tackled a new frontier, technology that was less about the technology. And a great example of this was Atari. You wrote that Atari involved business risk, marketing risk, and wild man risk. What was wild man risk and how did it change some of the VC partnerships with the companies that it was investing in? Sure, well, uh, Atari was this early gaming company. It had this game called Pong. Uh, the attraction was you could be as inebriated as you liked and you could still play it. It was so simple. <laughs> and, uh, and the founder of uh, this company, Nolan Bushnell, was himself somewhat inebriated or maybe very inebriated for much of the time. Uh, when the first venture capitalist who backed this company came to visit the factory where they were making these games, um, you know, he, he was coughing and spluttering and he was asked why. 
and you said, you know, whatever they're smoking in this place, it's not my brand. Hmm. In other words, it was thick with marijuana smoke. Uh, and there was a hot tub where they used to hold the board meetings and there'd be cans of beer floating around in the water. And if you were not willing to strip off and get in the hot tub with the uh, engineers who were building these games, you were not the right kind of investor for this culture. Uh, Nolan Bushnell was like six foot five. He called himself the Hugh Hefner of, uh, of tech. And um, he would go around writing, you know, brilliant ideas of his, you know, what he would do in his business next and on little pieces of paper that would sort of fall out of his pockets as he was walking around. Hmm. So completely chaotic. On Fridays, he would, you know, pay the engineers and they would all sprint for the car park to get in their cars and go to the bank and cash the check before the money ran out in the bank. Um, so when the venture capitalists invested in this thing, he had to impose some discipline uh, on the accounting, on the business. He had to sort of say, okay, you might actually need to get some more customers beyond the people in the bars who were inebriated. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was not that it was technically complicated to build these games, but it was commercially complicated and like humanly complicated to turn this inspired but chaotic culture into something that was a real business. Yeah, interesting that they were getting more involved in the business side of things while also recognizing the need to get down to the level of those that you were trying to connect with to make that initial investment too. Whereas I think you told the story that a couple of VCs who came in to uh, give some money to Atari, they saw the hot tub set up and guys getting in the hot tub and they were terrified. They kept their suits on and still tried to have these conversations. But the group that ultimately won them over said, you know what, we're going to strip down and get into the hot tub as well. Yeah. And that group was Sequoia, which, you know, later became uh, the most successful venture capital company of all. And the founder, Don Valentine, had the singular advantage that he'd been a water polo player for the Navy. So you can imagine he was built in the manner that when he took his shirt off and got in the hot tub, it actually enhanced his authority. Yeah, Don Valentine is uh, one of those characters from this book who seems like he needs a book of his own, Sebastian. Right, I mean, um, it was said of him that, you know, he could be so tough on people uh, that somebody passed out in a meeting with him, they were so scared of him. <laughs> uh, he would say there were two kinds of founders of companies and one kind should be taken out the back and shot. Um, <laughs> He wasn't afraid in investing in a company like Atari, but nor was he afraid in investing later on in Cisco. Cisco, of course, became the maker of routers for computers through the 1990s and had a massively commanding position in Silicon Valley. But it began um, in a bit like Atari, kind of totally chaotic, brilliant product, uh, but, but chaotic business culture. People apparently uh, you know, had fistfights in the office uh, they, they got on so badly together, a completely crazy bunch of people. And Don Valentine was, you know, with his Navy physique, was not scared of that stuff. And he invested and basically waded in for a while. He made himself the CEO. He made his investing partner the head of, um, uh, head of manufacturing. And they installed an entirely new team. They booted out the uh, founding couple that had created the company. And they basically remade the whole thing. Uh, and it was a fantastic success and um, dominated, as I say, writing technology for 13 or 14 years. But it took that, you know, roll your sleeves up and be tough kind of hands-on investing, which is why venture capital is so different to Wall Street, right? It's just a completely different mentality. 
much more hands-on. Yeah, we'll get more into Sequoia's dealings a little bit later on. First, though, how was venture capital at least partially responsible in helping to accelerate the seemingly decades-off potential for editing DNA in the 1970s? Sure. Well, in the, um, in the mid-late 1970s, there were the first experiments in recombinant DNA. Uh, and the idea was that you could basically you know, make an, an, a medicine like uh, insulin, artificial insulin in a test tube, as opposed to the almost medieval sounding method of taking a pancreas from a dead pig and squeezing the insulin out. Um, and so there were these test tube experiments at um, two uh, universities in California and a, a young venture investor heard about this science and thought to himself, you know, that's just fabulous. I mean, if we could accelerate that process, we could build the insulin and start selling it and it would be just a great business as well as a great thing for the world. So he went to see the scientists, one of them who had, uh, who had been involved in the early experiments. And he said, um, how long would it take to commercialize this thing? And, and the scientist said, well, you know, it could be, could be five years or something, maybe 10 years. And then the, the investor said, but what about if you didn't have to write a grant proposal? If, what about if we just took away all of the academic processes that normally slow you down? We just, you know, the money is there, you can have the team you want, and you can just do the science without the scientific bureaucracy. And then, you know, the, the guy says, this is called, he's called Herb Boyer, the scientist. He says, um, well, maybe, maybe we, we could do it faster. And uh, Bob Swanson, the investor said, of course you could do it faster. And uh, they write a business plan together and they take it to Kleiner Perkins, um, one of the other storied Silicon Valley uh, venture capital companies. Mm -hmm. And they say, listen, you know, we think we can try to make insulin um, and it's gonna be a massive market. And they talked um, Tom Perkins, the co-founder of Kleiner Perkins into backing them. And, that's, and, and they did exactly what uh, Bob Swanson had said. They took away all the scientific bureaucracy. They just did the science and they built artificial insulin in record time. Such a great example of venture capital's impact and really helping to speed up the idea of tech and very beneficial tech for society as well, obviously. Uh, why is the aforementioned Apple a good example of a successful venture network? Well, it was one of those stories where Steve Jobs was kind of an unlikely character, right? So we know now that he was one of the all-time geniuses of Silicon Valley entrepreneurship. But you know, picture this figure who's dropped out of uh, Reed College after a year or two, he's gone off to India to find a guru. He comes back and believes in a fruitarian diet. Um, he doesn't usually wear shoes. He washes his feet in the you know, company. Well, he doesn't even have a company bathroom at that point, but he, he washes his feet in the basin just occasionally, but basically he doesn't wash them. And there he is hanging out in this garage with his friend Woz, who is a, is a pretty good engineer, but basically doesn't look anyone in the eye. So you, you've got this unlikely character, both called Steve, and, and they wanna raise money and, and they have no credentials. And this is you know, not in the era of Mark Zuckerberg, where we're used to the idea that people drop out of college and they build these great companies. Uh, this is like way back in the seventies. And not surprisingly, the first people that Steve Jobs asked for money said, 
you gotta be kidding. You think I'm gonna give you money? I mean, you're not even wearing shoes. And, you know, Arthur Rock, who was, you know, the, as I said, the dominant West Coast venture capitalist, told me that, you know, he hadn't had a bath for a long time. And it, it was difficult to be in the room with that guy. So he refused to invest initially. But the good thing was that the culture had already evolved to the point where when you said no to somebody, you also introduced them to somebody else in case they had a, you know, maybe they should have a second chance. And so each person who said no to Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs would say, well, who else should I talk to? What can I do? How can I make this work? And they would pass him on. And eventually a retired engineer uh, who had worked at uh, one of the other um, computing companies, I believe it was HP, um, went to see uh, the garage where the two Steves were hanging out. And this guy was called Mike Markele. He shows up and he knows enough about circuit boards to spot that there was a really good circuit board design that uh, Wozniak had built. And that changes his mind and he gets involved and he puts his own money in because he, he's made a lot of money off of stock options from his previous company. And he starts to help them to build it. And then once he's involved, it's possible to go to the venture capitalists and get them to invest. And you know, even so, a lot of them passed initially but eventually a West Coast outfit called Venrock, which was the investing arm of the, the, uh, the uh, Rockefeller family. They took a meeting. They weren't sure whether to invest. Steve Jobs still seemed a bit crazy. They said, excuse us. And we, they stepped out for a minute. They, they stand around in the corridor for a couple of minutes and, and say, should we do it? Should we not do it? Well, what the hell, let's try it. And they back him. Um, and, that then leads other people to have FOMO, they pile on, and it starts to build momentum. Arthur Rock invests, and that's a big signal in Silicon Valley because of his prestige. And you know, Steve Jobs turns out to be really good at hustling and at design, and it turns out to be one of the all-time success stories. But it, it was turned down many times initially. So in some sense, it's a story about the failure of venture capitalists to spot a good deal. But in the other sense, it's a story about the success of the venture capital network in ultimately coming to the right decision. It was around your telling of the Apple story that you cited sociologist Mark Granovetter, who argued in 1973 that weak ties generate a greater circulation of information than a handful of strong ones. Now, that tends to, uh, tends to uh, go against, I think, uh, logic in some ways. But why is this, Sebastian? So think of a model, and this is a real model, right, where on the uh, East Coast in Boston, there was a, a thriving technology ecosystem built around MIT and Boston and Lincoln Labs and defense contracts. And so you've got Wang, you've got DEC, you've got these mini computer companies, but they are vertically integrated and people tend to join and stay there a long time. And they're quite secretive. And so the people who work there have strong ties to the folks who are in the same company, but they don't have many weak ties to folks outside because you're not supposed to talk about the secrets to anybody on the outside. And it turns out that that culture has a problem. The problem is, let's imagine you're an engineer in the research department, you have a great idea, but your research director doesn't like it. Maybe he doesn't like it because he thinks it's a bad idea. Maybe he doesn't like it because it's a great idea, but if you were to succeed with it, it would cannibalize an existing product that the company is building. 
So at that point, the idea is dead. Now compare this to the West Coast, where you've got lots of startups. And the engineer at a, at a medium size or big company like HP uh, has an idea. The boss doesn't want to do it. The engineer is frustrated, goes to a bar, bumps into some other engineers, bumps into a venture capitalist, you know, talks about the idea and says, you know, it's too bad I couldn't pursue this idea. And the venture capitalist says, wow, that's a great idea. You know, I'll help you. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the money. And uh, with that capital, you could set up your own company and do the experiment yourself. Now that idea has a chance of working. And so Granovetta's idea is that when you've got this system where ideas and people and money flow around the ecosystem and people meet up in that bar after work and they trade ideas, it's much more fertile as, an, as a system for invention. Multiple iterative experiments, i.e. multiple startups, are more likely to come up with a break idea, breakthrough idea than a vertically integrated hermetic secretive uh, company. And when you look at what happened in the 1980s, uh, the West Coast did overtake the East Coast. But even my argument is that even with Apple in the 1970s, you could see this as a sort of prophecy of the 1980s where you know, Steve Jobs is out there trying to raise money. He doesn't do so at first, but he talks to enough people in the network that eventually he gets funded. And then the idea gets a chance to work. He builds the personal computer and it works. And then the rest is history. Yeah, uh, you talked about Cisco a little bit earlier and Don Valentine and Sequoia landing uh, on Cisco uh, in terms of it being literally the most successful story out of Silicon Valley in the 1980s. What all did Cisco and its successes unlock for Don Valentine and Sequoia going forward for the next couple of decades? Yeah, so Cisco's breakthrough was something called the multi-protocol router, which in other words, it was a way for computers to connect to each other even when they had different protocols, like when they were running different software, they were made by a different computer manufacturer. Before you could only link up one type of computer. So um, you might have a situation, for example, at Stanford, and this is a true story where, you know, the business faculty had computers that were all linked up together with ethernet cables, but the business faculty couldn't speak to the computer science faculty. And so what happened was that the person running uh, the, the, uh, the, the network for the computer science faculty was dating the person running the business school's fac you know, set, set up. And they were pissed off that they couldn't send each other love letters over the network. So they built a multi-protocol router. And then when Stanford didn't let them take that breakthrough and turn it into a company, they quit anyway and they set up Cisco. And they turned that multi-protocol router idea into a business and they were very innovative and they got it started. Um, and by this point they were a married couple, but they, they, they were very tough to work with. And so that's when they got investment from Don Valentine of Sequoia. He initially worked with them, but wound up firing one of them because she was so difficult. And then the other one quit out of sympathy. Um, and so Cisco went ahead without them and it became this dominant company because the idea of the multi-protocol multi router was just so crucial to the build out of the internet. The, the, everybody wanted to be connected to everybody all of a sudden. And as the internet arrived, that was just a super valuable idea. And Sequoia, in an innovation that was unusual then, um, Don Valentine stayed on the board of Cisco way after it went public. 
So venture capitalists are normally just focused on the early stage of a company, but once it's bigger and goes public, they normally fade into the background. In this case, they stayed involved, and that gave Sequoia a vantage point to kind of see what the next thing in, in networking technology might be. And then Sequoia would go off and back startups that might build that next thing. And then if it worked, um, Cisco would buy that startup. And so you had a sort of feedback loop where Sequoia was on the board of Cisco, which would be buying startups that had been backed by Cisco. And it entrenched Sequoia at the center of the tech ecosystem in Silicon Valley. While there was nothing legally wrong with that, is, is there anything amoral about a setup like that, do you think, Sebastian? I think if they had been really locking up um, the, the world of routers uh, and nobody else could compete, then it would be anti-competitive and that would be bad, bad for innovation, and therefore the law should come down on them. The interesting thing about that story, though, is although it worked out pretty well for Sequoia, in actual fact, the company, the, the venture company that did even better was Kleiner Perkins. And the way they did this was that although they, they were not collaborating with Cisco, they would build next generation um, multi-protocol routing technology. And then Cisco would want to buy it. And they would say, no, they would refuse. And they would wait another six months for their technology to really take off. And then Cisco would come back with another offer. At this point, Cisco would be desperate. And instead of offering like 500 million bucks, they would offer billions of dollars. Mm. Uh, and at that point, Kleiner Perkins would sell. And Vinod Kostler, one of the partners at Kleiner Perkins, did this like three times with different router companies in the 1990s. And he, would, he, he ended up selling them all. And that made him the number one venture capitalist in the world in the 1990s because he could sell at such a premium because he didn't sell immediately. How did Mosaic Communications, which went on to become Netscape, serve as another major step in the evolution of the power law? Yeah, it's a great question because um, before the arrival of the internet, if you think about it, there had already been Moore's law, right? There had been semiconductors, and we know from Moore's law that these tend to double in power uh, every couple of years, even without increasing the cost. So if you were building a product like a router, like a personal computer uh, uh, that, that used semiconductors, the inputs that you were putting into the device were going to be uh, doubling in power every couple of years, and you could therefore either cut the cost or increase the quality uh, just because the inputs were getting better. And so you were sitting on what some venture capitalists call tech beta when the whole market is going up because the tech is getting better. And so one of the reasons why the winners in venture capital investing carry on winning uh, and therefore deliver this exponential profit um, is because of that increase in the fundamental power of the tech through Moore's law. Now, fast forward to the arrival of, of the internet, and you get another thing called Metcalfe's law. And Metcalfe's law says that when you have a network, the value to the users goes up with every new person who joins the network. Because if you think about it, you want to send email to people, 
the more people who are available on the network that you could send an email to, the more useful the, the email system becomes. So Metcalfe's law states that the value of the network rises as the square of the number of people on the network. And so, you know, if there are 10 people on the network, it's worth 100. But if it doubles to uh, 20 people, it, you know, it, the value quadruples to 400 because it rises as the square. So now I just think about, um, you know, building a product for the internet. You've got, you've got Moore's law, which is still present and active, which is like doubling the value of what you're doing every couple of years because the semiconductors are more valuable or more efficient. Um, and then you've got Metcalfe's law, which is then turbocharging that on top. So I call this the turbo power law. It's, it's not just the simple power law, it's like a turbo, you know, turbocharged. Uh, and so when you built a company like eBay, um, which sits on top of this network and on top of semiconductors, eBay was the first example of a consumer product where you could do these auctions online, which went from nothing to being worth several billion dollars in an incredibly short time. So it's the beginning of the, of the massively quick software-driven profits. And that was all made possible by the first point and click uh, graphical interface browser, which was Mosaic. Mosaic was invented in a government lab um, uh, in Illinois, and then commercialized in Silicon Valley as Netscape. Uh, and Netscape went public in 1995. That was the big breakthrough moment uh, for the consumer internet. And Benchmark really started to make its name with that initial investment in eBay a little bit after that. Now, it has been established throughout this conversation, VCs are good at sniffing out ideas with big potential. So it's no surprise that they found Yahoo in that company's early days as one of the first to offer users the ability to search for just about anything on the web. But Yahoo's founders made it clear that they wanted this feature to remain free. How? If at all, did that alter the way in which VCs worked with companies like Yahoo? Yeah, so it was a funny story. Michael Moritz from Sequoia, um, who had been hired by Don Valentine to join Sequoia and was you know, part of the next generation of, of brilliant Sequoia investors, uh, visited this uh, trailer uh, on the Stanford campus. And inside it, he found a lot of junk strewn around the floor, but also two enormous um, computer screens uh, powered by these workstations that were fondly named after sumo wrestlers hmm. by the inmates of this trailer who were Jerry Yang and David Philo. And they were the founders of Yahoo. Uh, they called themselves the chief Yahoos and they had all these weird nomenclature and they were doing it kind of as a, as a hobby, as a break from their PhD uh, dissertations at Stanford. And when Michael Moritz sort of said to them, well, you know, this could be the TV guide for the internet, this could be quite useful. How much are you gonna charge consumers for it? They looked at him like he was nuts and said, this is a hobby, we're not gonna charge for it. So then Michael Moritz had to think, well, if it's gonna be a business that we invest in, it's gotta make some money somehow. And so then he had the idea that he was a former journalist. And of course, you know, radio often doesn't charge people, but then it makes money through advertising. So he quickly understood that you could, you could do Yahoo, you could invest in it, and you would monetize through advertising. And so he helped um, the two Yahoos to make 
their business into a real commercial thing uh, by uh, pushing the idea of advertising. But of course, to get ads, you have to have eyeballs. And so the race for maximum customer um, acquisition began. And it created this style of, of venture capital investing where a lot of the dollars that you invest go into advertising to try and drive uh, user growth, to do what they call blitz scaling, uh, where you massively drive for number one position to be the internet directory of choice, because only the number one is gonna succeed, right? Everybody in the world is gonna to want to go to the best directory, and the number two will basically be a, a, not valuable at all. And so Yahoo started to chew up capital like nobody's business. For a while, it was very, very valuable because it was the number one. But at a certain point, somebody invented a better search technology that was a better directory. Of course, that was Google. And then Yahoo basically uh, failed. So the amount that VCs were investing in tech skyrockets, obviously, in the 1990s, really beginning in the mid-90s, going to the end of that decade. Just how much of the responsibility do VCs um, bear for the tech bubble bursting early on this century? Yeah, it's a great question because one of the things that struck me when I first was researching my book, you know, five years ago, I would go to Silicon Valley, interview people and go to Sand Hill Road where, you know, a lot of the VC companies are headquartered. And I came away because my background was in writing books about public markets. I've written about hedge funds, for example. And I just thought Silicon Valley was a machine for building bubbles. I mean, you know, just imagine you, you put all of the investors on one road, you call it Sandhill Road. Hmm. You make sure there's only a couple of restaurants on that road so they all meet each other for lunch every time. Um, they have groupthink as a result, plus they have to syndicate into each other's deals because as I explained before, you know, you have one round of financing for a startup and then nine months later, the money runs out, you need some more money. And so then you go to a different venture capital company to syndicate into the same startup. And often one round will have two or three different uh, VCs involved. So they're all investing in each other's companies and you can't go short, you, know, you can't bet against something, which is something you can do in public uh, investing in the stock market. So the whole thing doesn't have an off switch. Basically everybody is group thinking together and they have an interest in, in pushing up the market values. Um, and so when everything started to get super overheated because of the internet, valuations in private tech companies went up and up and up and there was nothing there to stop it. And the only discipline would have been going to do an IPO and finding out that nobody wanted to pay the price that the private investors were paying. And the problem was that in the late 1990s, that check on the valuations, which was traditionally provided by the stock market, failed to work because there were day traders all of a sudden who were driving up the public markets. They were buying and selling stocks uh, online. And this was possible for the first time because of the internet. And so online trading drove up online companies. Um, and as a result, there was this feedback loop between the private markets were going up because the public markets were going up, the public markets were going up because the private markets were going up. So I think the answer to your question is, the private markets are always creating bubbles. And then when the public markets also start doing the same thing, that's when you get into real trouble. And that's what led to the bubble inflating in 1999. 
I think the Fed was also a bit guilty there too, because they were very loose at the time. And then in 2000, the whole thing blew up. To feel like all three of those things are at play again in modern times with what's going on economically? It does. Yeah. Short answer. <laughs> okay. Uh, how did Google play the investment game so well and in the process really signal another massive shift in the venture capital game? Yeah. So what happened by 1998 when Google got going is that Silicon Valley was mature enough that there were a whole bunch of entrepreneurs who had you know, started tech companies, sold them after maybe 10 years, made a ton of money, and then perhaps started another company, or maybe they didn't, but they were hanging around with big bank balances. And they were just interested in the younger generation of new entrepreneurs who were coming up because they kind of looked like themselves, but they were 10 years younger. They had new fresh ideas and that was cool and interesting. And so when Google got started, you know, started by two people, two more graduate students from Stanford who were doing their PhD, uh, PhDs in, in computer science, um, people who had come through the same track 10 years previously had money and they put money into these guys um, as so-called angel investors, where they basically wrote, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollar checks um, didn't demand any real involvement or control, but they just wanted a little piece of the action uh, because they thought that the founders were cool. Uh, and one of the people who backed these two founders, uh, of course, we're talking about Sergey Brin and, and Larry Page. Uh, one was Jeff Bezos of Amazon. There was um, uh, uh, three others who, who came in as well, um, including one of the founders of Sun, microsystems. Uh, and so that's how they got going. And between 1998 and 1999, they had a million dollars to get the search engine functioning. And then in 1999, they went to real venture capitalists. By this point, they had a proper product that they could just demo. And they really almost didn't need a pitch deck, which is how you normally raise money, because they could just pull out their computers and say, look how the search engine works. And the moment you saw how great the results were, how fast they popped up, how relevant they were. You could see that it was just better than Yahoo. And so they were in such a strong position to raise money that they laid down that the two top venture partnerships in the whole of Silicon Valley would have to invest, that they would take 50-50 on the deal. And that way, neither of them would have too much power to tell Larry and Sergey what to do. And they got what they wanted, which was unprecedented. So they really flipped the balance of power between the entrepreneurs and the venture capitalists. Who was Paul Graham and what was his unified theory of VC suckage? Yes, yeah, so uh, Paul Graham is most famous as the founder of Y Combinator, uh, which was set up in 2005 with the idea of doing this angel investing, but in a more organized way. So instead of having random former entrepreneurs with big checkbooks, you know, writing random checks when they felt like it. Uh, Paul Graham was an exited entrepreneur, another software founder who had some money. But what he did was he, he created a fund with a couple of his buddies and they all put money in. And then they put out an ad and said, if you think you're founding a, a software company um, and you want to spend a summer, like, you know, advancing that idea, come and join the summer school for startup founders. 
and uh, we'll, we'll help you a bit and, and you can hang out with us. We'll give you a little bit of money, enough to pay the rent and buy us some pizza so keep you going. Uh, and we'll take a small share of your company and we'll help you to incorporate it, you know, do the legal work and all that stuff. And hey, you know, we'll cook dinner on Tuesday nights and all of the people in the summer school will come and have a laid back dinner together. We'll get a speaker in and you can network together. It'll be cool, it'll be fun and come join us. So it was a very laid back model. And because Paul Graham himself was this good computer scientist who had used his skills to build a successful startup that he had sold at, at a big profit. And because he'd also written a blog, he was one of the early bloggers, which was extremely thoughtful and fun to read and kind of inspiring to young coders. He already had a founding, I mean, sorry, he had a following um, amongst young coders who, who worshiped him even before he started Y Combinator. So when he did Y Combinator, it was a natural outgrowth of his standing in the community. And he put out this, this message on his blog saying, hey, come to the summer school. Tons of people applied. And he took a select few who seemed to be really good. And they did the summer school and everybody wanted to join the second summer school. And pretty soon this became a super successful business where the equity that they took in the new little companies that they incorporated became extremely valuable. Out of this came Dropbox, Airbnb, and a few other big hit companies. And uh, Paul Graham did really well, but also he did, he became famous and influential in the, in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Why did Peter Thiel despise major venture capital firms in the late 90s and early 2000s? Yeah, I mean, I should have said before, you know, Paul Graham's universal theory of VC suckage, and this is a, a good way of segueing to Peter Thiel because he had kind of a similar view. It was basically that traditionalist VCs were putting too much money into startups, drowning them in capital. They didn't really need that much cash and they were not respectful enough of the entrepreneurs. Uh, and they were too keen to like squeeze the originality out of the entrepreneurs by saying, I'm a VC, I'm experienced, I'm older than you, I tell you how to do this. And Paul Graham's idea was, no, you should let the weirdness and the funkiness of you know, 22 year old founders just express itself and, and you know, let them do their thing. And Peter Thiel had kind of a similar view. He was a bit less enamored of being 22 years old because he had come to entrepreneurship when he was more like in his late twenties, he'd started PayPal. Um, and he was not a software coder. He was a former, you know, he'd been to law school and he had founded PayPal paired with a technologist, but he himself was more of the business side. Um, and he was a finance, you know, he'd also started a hedge fund. So he was a finance trading kind of legal guy, um, very risk-taking, very entrepreneurial, but not, not a technologist himself. Um, and Peter Thiel's view was that because of the power law, because in other words, only one or two out of 10 bets is going to do really, really well. To do well, you've got to be weird. You've got to be unusual because if you're normal, you're going to do something that five other people do as well. And there'll be five other startups trying to compete with you to do the same thing. And so all the profits will be competed away and it, it won't work. To be an outlier success story, you've got to be unusual. And so he boasted about the fact that of the handful of people who 
started PayPal with him, like four of them had built bombs in high school. His point was, you are weird if you're a founder. That's a good thing. And, and don't let that older venture capitalist who may be you know, committing the sin of wearing a jacket and tie, don't let that stiff you know, tell you what to do. Just be weird, be contrarian, be libertarian, be funky, you know, build a bomb, do whatever. Um, and so this was the culture out of which you know, Elon Musk also came. You know, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel worked together at PayPal until they had a fight with each other and Peter Thiel got Elon Musk fired. But they were very similar kinds of contrarian, audacious, risk-taking people. And so when Peter Thiel founded his venture company called Founders Fund in 2005, the same year that Y Combinator got started, they both basically had theories of VC suckage. They were both rebelling against the traditional Sand Hill Road. So uh, as many know, uh, Peter Thiel eventually gets into the VC game himself around 2004, 2005, and he has proven himself to be one of the best at investing in that world. Is that because he has remained good at going after that uh, wild man risk that we talked about with Atari from the early 1970s? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. Um, he was the first venture capitalist to speak explicitly about the power law. You know, before he came along, lots of venture capitalists intuitively got the concept and they would say things like, yeah, you know, only a few of these companies are going to work. So what you need to do is not worrying, worry about losing money. You've got to just go for the things that you think might really do well. So they kind of, they had the power law idea, but they didn't call it the power law and they didn't think about it as systematically. Peter Thiel was the man who came along and said, you know, wow, this is actually a, a law of statistics. It's a law of human nature. If you think about cities, you know, 80% of the populations of cities live in 20% of the cities because you have this skewed distribution of which cities are super big. Um, academic citations is the same thing. A few academic papers get all of the citations. And because Peter Thiel was a very good mathematician, he understood all that stuff and he applied it to the design of how he did venture capital. So for example, you know, because he was out to capture these outlier power law exceptional bets, he really doubled down on the weirdness idea. He hired people to be venture investors with him who had like been in trouble with the law or they'd been fired from somewhere or they were just weird themselves. Um, you know, Sean Parker, who had been kicked out of PayPal uh, having been the co-founder uh, because he was discovered in a beach house on the East Coast with an underage woman who was working for him uh, and a bunch of drugs, or, or so it was alleged, it wasn't proven, but that was the allegation. Um, and, um, you know, other people wouldn't want to work with Sean Parker maybe, but Peter Thiel was happy to do so. And so he, he went for the outlier brilliant people and he backed people in that same uh, style and including he, brought, he backed Peter Thiel when he was doing SpaceX, which was a, you know, talk about, you know, backing some kind of rocket science idea. This was literally rockets and they were blowing up at the time that Peter Thiel backed him. It was not a success yet. You said he backed Peter Thiel. You mean he backed Elon Musk for SpaceX? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. He backed just Elon Musk. Sure, for, just making sure that people are clear about that. Ab absolutely. So he backed Elon Musk at a time when SpaceX was building rockets that just blew up. And... After and, 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 bur and buried a hatchet at the time, too, because there was still a lot of resentment uh, based on Musk, uh, Musk's exit from PayPal. 
That's right. Uh, you know, Musk had gotten married, gone on honeymoon, and while he was on honeymoon, he got fired by a bunch of Peter Thiel followers. Hmm. That that was not a happy moment in their relationship. So it hmm. took a while for them to to bury the hatchet. And uh, the story is that you know, a, a little bit later, Peter Thiel runs into Elon Musk at a wedding, and uh, Elon Musk needs some capital for SpaceX, and he says to Peter Thiel. How's about we bury the hatchet and uh, you invest in in uh, SpaceX? And Peter Thiel puts it to his partners. Some of them think it's such a crazy idea, you know, a rocket company. You must be joking. Um, but um, others uh, think it's a great idea. And um, because of this way that Founders Fund, Peter Thiel's venture company, was structured, it was deliberately structured that you don't have to have a consensus to do the investment. It's okay if one person feels strongly that it's a great idea, um, uh, then we should do it. And Luke Nozek was the partner who really believed it was a good idea. And he's a bit of a crazy character. I, I spent a happy two or three hours with him one day. Um, and um, he wanted to do the investment. The others thought it was nuts, but they let him do it and it worked out fantastically well. How has China's tech success been driven by venture capital more than many realize as seen through the financing of Alibaba? And just how much did the Chinese government put into Alibaba and its beginnings? Yeah, so when I was reading about China before I went there for this research, um, you know, I read books like the one by, first one by Kai-Fu Li, who's a well-known artificial intelligence uh, scientist trained in the US, came from Taiwan, but went back to China, uh, went to China and, and, and became a, a venture capitalist uh, specializing in artificial intelligence. And he tells the story in his book that the government has been very important to strategically advancing China's position in the digital economy. But what I found when I went to investigate was that whatever the case about AI, the early Chinese internet uh, companies that succeeded whether it's Alibaba, Tencent, or Baidu, whether it's Sina, Sohu, or NetEase, all of these early companies um, got zero input from the government. I mean, the government didn't invest at all. And in that vacuum, in walked venture capital. And American-style venture dollars is what backed uh, Alibaba and all of those other early startups. And it was crucial in turning Alibaba into a world-class company. And the reason I say that is that um, the way Alibaba was built is that Jack Ma, the founder, uh, who was sort of this improbable English teacher operating out of his apartment in Hangzhou, China, um, was able to hire world-class people. For example, the lead technologist at Yahoo in California, a guy called John Wu, a Chinese-American, um, and he persuaded John Wu to quit his position at Yahoo, which was a super successful company then, and join Alibaba, which was a startup. How was that even possible? The answer is that Jack Ma had stock options, and he could give stock options in Alibaba to John Wu, and John Wu took the view that these options in Alibaba were going to be more valuable than what he had in Yahoo because Yahoo had already succeeded, the options had already paid out, mm. whereas Alibaba was just getting started, China was a huge market, and so he believed the vision. But that was only possible because there were equity stock options to give. Why were there equity stock options? 
Well, it wasn't because that was normal in China. To the contrary, even normal stocks were a new thing in China. Like the Chinese public stock markets were opened in 1990. There were two of them in mainland China, Shenzhen and Shanghai. They started in 1990. So in 1998, when Alibaba got going, stocks were new, let alone stock options. And the stock options were only made possible because the American venture investors brought in American lawyers from Silicon Valley hmm. who structured the company with like a Cayman Islands parent thing and the ability to issue all kinds of different shares, preferred stock, normal stock, equity options, and so forth. And that's why Jack Ma had this superpower of hiring John Wu. And by the way, that's also how I hired his chief financial officer, Joe Tsai, another Chinese-American who joined only because of the stock options. And I don't think Alibaba would ever have gotten off the ground in the same way if it hadn't been for those equity options. Considering China has established a reputation over the last 10 to 15 years of partnering up with various industries to squeeze them for every bit of knowledge that they have before taking that back to China and kind of shutting that uh, other business or company off, have we seen uh, China's VC deals involve less international money over the last five to 10 years? Uh, not yet, um, at least in terms of so Chinese deals in China are still um, feature quite a bit of uh, foreign money, mainly US money, but also other foreign money, because foreign investors are excited to take a piece of the very fast growing Chinese digital economy, right? Um, it, it could well be that as part of this geopolitical standoff, the Chinese government clamps down on that. Um, but for now, that hasn't happened. What has happened is the other direction, is where the US government, um, I think rightly, doesn't like the idea that, that Chinese venture investors are in American tech companies because they may take that technology by virtue of being inside the tent, they're gonna learn about what's coming down the pike and they're gonna use that to help Chinese tech companies copy it. And since some kinds of technology have military applications, I'm not sure that's a great thing for the United States from a national security point of view. So uh, the US government through its CFIUS mechanisms and through other types of um, activity is able to discourage that Chinese investment in American venture deals. How much has VC fueled the rise of blockchain and cryptocurrency? Well, quite a lot. I mean, Andreessen Horowitz is a big uh, Silicon Valley venture capital partnership, which has invested at this point, I think, um, I don't know whether it's $3 billion, but it's, it's sort of in that range into crypto, NFT, blockchain, and Web3. It has these dedicated funds that do just that. Uh, and then there are other venture partnerships which are piling in. Sequoia, which we've been talking about, recently joined the bandwagon a few months ago. Um, so it's not the only source of money. Um, you know, as you know, part of the feature of the crypto ecosystem is that people issue tokens and then the tokens become valuable because regular people buy them or whoever buys them buys them. And um, that in itself is a source of capital for doing crypto projects. Uh, but, but traditional VC is also part of the source of the capital. Mm. 
All right, last question, Sebastian. You write at the beginning that you had two main goals for this book, to explain the venture capital mindset, which I think you did a great job of, and to evaluate venture capital's social impact because uh, many believe, uh, many VCs believe that they are making this world a better place. Well, nothing is absolute. Do you think that that is happening more often than not? I do think it's happening more often than not, even though I agree with the, with the idea that you know, some big tech companies have big negative impacts, you know, whether it's an invasion of privacy, whether it's monopoly, whether it's, you know, assisting in fake news being spread around the place. Um, you know, I think there's a bunch of concerns that society ought to have about big tech and it ought to be regulated. But I think that if you don't like big tech and you're worried about big tech monopoly power, in some sense, the antidote is small tech, right? Small tech, new, 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 new tech companies that get started to challenge the existing platform monopolies. And those new tech companies, of course, are being backed, backed by venture capital. So in a way, the more you're worried about big tech, the more you should favor venture capital and small tech, in my view. Mm. Very uh, nice, level-headed answer. He is Sebastian Malaby, a best-selling author former Financial Times contributing editor, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's also the Paul A. Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. His newest book, which we've been talking about today, is titled The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Sebastian, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this fascinating book. Thanks for the great questions. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to Josh Bates for the video editing. You can get a hold of Josh on Instagram at Forager Digital. And thanks to you for checking us out, of course. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.